The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Eric Fear, the president of Silvercrest Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVCMF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as SIL.B. Silvercrest Metals is a Vancouver-based precious metals exploration company that is focused on new discoveries, value-added acquisitions, and targeting production in Mexico's historic precious metals districts. Their Las Chispas mine in Sonora State, Mexico, promises to be a potentially highly prolific play with bonanza grades of up to 18.5 grams per ton gold and 2,460 grams per ton silver or 3,851 grams per ton silver equivalent. Eric, welcome back to the program. Ellis, thanks for having me on again. Always a pleasure. Give us an update if you don't mind. What's going on at the Las Chispas Mine in Sonora State, Mexico? We've been in the midst of trying to finish off our expanded Phase 1 drill program and also continue to complete our underground rehabilitation program. So those are going down the same path at the moment. Both, if you've been watching our news releases, there's some pretty stellar grades that are coming out from the underground channel sampling. Just to note to everybody and all your listeners that you got to really appreciate when you're underground, uh, there's now 11.5 kilometers of underground workings. I went down, I was head boots on the ground about three weeks ago, and I got to walk about three of those kilometers, and that took about two and a half days to do that. So you're walking, you're going up ladders, you're going over bridges, you're looking at this stuff in the wall, and you're comparing it to the grades that we're releasing. And again, these stellar grades, you know, plus one kilo, plus two kilo silver equivalents. For simplicity reasons, I'll just talk about silver equivalency. This is a gold and silver deposit that we're working on, and I use the 75 to 1 ratio, and that's 100% metallurgical recovery when I'm discussing silver equivalencies. So again, spectacular grades that are coming out from our underground channel sampling, and now we've released our first set of drill holes on Las Chispas. And just so you know, we believe that these are the first holes that have ever been drilled in this area, which we consider to be a district play now. And the results are pretty stellar, pretty impressive, as what really you should take away from this news about the drilling is that the zone is a lot thicker than it was previously mined. We only have access to anywhere from one to three meters underground as we're sampling, and we're getting drill intercepts now that are you know between five to ten meters in thickness of the uh, the mineralized zone. The news also only defines the Las Chispas 
main vein, and there's 14 historic recorded veins in this district. So this is one vein out of the 14, and we're focusing on three of those, which were the past producers. So what you want to see coming this point forward in the newsworthy events, we're going to have a whole series of press releases over the next several weeks, and we're going to basically tell the story as one vein at a time as we have these intercepts, and then we'll probably do a wrap-up at the end just uh, as the fall starts and the, and the season starts coming in September of the district-wide play and give some people some sense of how big this area is and how big these targets actually appear to be and keep the momentum and the excitement going. Of course, uh, metal prices are helping us quite a bit. Our shares are up uh, as of Friday about 1,200 to 1,300% since January. So those numbers got to impress somebody, hopefully. And, and a lot of that basically is, is based on the acceleration of the metal prices and a lot of people coming back into the market. So the Silvercrest Las Chispas mine could be one of the biggest stories coming out of Mexico in 2016, 2017, correct? Yeah, I believe so. We're just starting to discover the hidden value, if you want to call that, in this district play. Why wasn't Las Chispas exploited historically then? Give us some background here. Historically, the mines, there were several in the district that we're working around and that we control now. It uh, operated between 1880, and I'll even go further back in history here. It was discovered in uh, 1640 by a Spanish general, and there was some mining activity that started then. They had found an outcrop that was very high-grade silver. What happened is there was 200 years of Apache raids, and that prevented any miners from coming into the area until the late 1800s. So from 1880 to 1930, there were multiple mines in the district. They had produced, from the recorded history that I can find in internal documents and on public file, about 100 million ounces of silver and 200,000 ounces of gold above the water table. I believe that that was very high grade. The average grades were 1.7 kilos per ton silver and 15 grams per ton gold. And the average widths were 1 to 3 meters in these veins. Back to what we're drilling now, we're seeing those widths to be considerably more, and again, some stellar grades. Uh, news release, you start seeing one, two, three kilos per ton type intercepts over you know, 0.5 to 2 meters. Those are some pretty serious numbers, and they have some continuity to them. So I think during the 1880 to 1930s, period, there was, I know from some recorded history too, there was a lot of disruption to the mine. It wasn't because of the mining and the grade. It was more political and social. You had the revolution. There was also an interruption. There was a mini revolution after the main revolution of Mexico where the government had shut down the Catholic Church and wasn't allowing it to give freedom of religion. That caused a disruption on site. There was a mill burnt down and that was another disruption. And it seemed to be that they probably just didn't have enough money, although there was technology at the time. You could get some drills and drill this, but they were living hand to mouth. And they had a lot of problem with theft of 
high-grade 500 to 1,000 ounces per ton silver that was being sold on the black market by the miners just being removed in bags out the back door. So, yeah, it just was strapped for money and just didn't get drilled. Well, let's be clear. Sonora State is a very secure mining jurisdiction as compared to the rest of Mexico. There's no issues related to safety, are there? No. It's the safest state to work in Mexico. I've worked in Mexico for over 20 years and have never had a problem, knock on wood. Everything's uh, secure on site. It's under lock gates and controlled by the company and by the ranchers, and there's a yejito that we deal with. And all those agreements are in place for surface rights. There's no problem on site. I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that back in the spring, Silvercrest was the number one growth stock on the TSX with regard to mining. That's correct. We'll see how uh, last week and this week goes and and see if they uh, still have that. Give us the gold star for that. So you should be rolling out news during the next six months to a year, if not indefinitely, with the size of this district. At what point do you say, let's go into production, even if it's a pilot plant? Well, we're already planning on that, Ellis. We are permitting and almost done permitting, probably in a couple weeks, a 100,000-ton bulk sample. So this would be geared up for 2017. Under our exploration permit, we can't process it on site, so we would look at the two producers that are in the region. That would be the Santa Elena mine, which is run by First Majestic just south of us, which is a mine that my team had discovered and put into production successfully and then merged with First Majestic last October. And the other mine is the Yamana Mercedes mine, which uh, Premier Gold has just made an announcement that they're acquiring. So we're in discussions with both mine sites or toll milling of our bulk sample. And a lot of people, including some guys on my board, say, well, once you start, you're probably never going to stop. So you'll just permit from here until you're into operations. There's several paths that we can follow here. We can grow the resources into reserves and put into production ourselves with enough ounces to justify the capital costs to start production. We can uh, do a deal with Santa Elena First Majestic, or we can do a deal with Yamana slash Premier Gold now. Those are the likely three paths that we'll follow currently. In my experience, it usually is that you have to put these things into production yourself, take all the risk, and then someone will come in and take you out. So done that before, doing it successfully today, we can do that again. All things considered, again, with the size of the Las Chispas project, perhaps dwarfing what you did in the past with the former Silvercrest mines that you sold to First Majestic, why wouldn't you decide to just become a mid-tier producer yourself? Yeah, yep, that could be. That would be a path, definitely, that we're following. And then as you build a bank down the road, wouldn't you also look at properties to add to your portfolio outside of Las Chispas? I'm looking at other properties right now. So we can expect some more excitement in the future. Yep, not only from Las Chispas, but there's games afoot, looking at other opportunities. I like Mexico. I don't see leaving Mexico. As long as you're working in safe areas, there's huge elephant hunt country like nowhere else in the world that I feel. And we like things that are simple. That's part of our success. So easy to get to site. I live in Vancouver. I can fly down and be on site the same day. Those are 
great to manage. Infrastructures there, the political and social situation, and at least in northern Mexico, is pretty stable, so you can work around those areas. Well, certainly the shareholders of Silvercrest that have been with you just in the last year must be very, very happy, and the story is just beginning to grow now. Well, they believe in success, so if investors are going to put their money anywhere, you want to go with a successful management team that has proven themselves in a good market or a bad market, and we've done both. And that should be a top criteria for any investor is to look at the guys that had success and follow where the money's going, basically. We have great support, and I think we'll continue to have great support moving forward here. Eric, once again, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Congratulations on all of your hard work and the company's good news. Thanks again for joining me today on the program. Okay. Thanks again for having me on, Ellis. I've been speaking with Eric Fear, the president of Silvercrest Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVCMF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as SIL.B. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com, or listen to the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Giannis Sittos, president of Gold Source Mines, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS.V. Gold Source is a Canadian junior mining company producing gold in mining-friendly English-speaking Guyana, bordering the Caribbean and South America. Giannis, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Alice, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to talk again to your audience. You were with BHP Billiton for 19 years. You've lived and worked all over the world, Latin America, Europe, and, of course, Canada. Why is the Eagle Mountain Project in Guyana so special, and what's the outlook for gold production in Guyana? Project is special for us because we have gone through a lot of stages as a junior company, and we recognized the value uh, long ago, back in 2010. But in the last two years, we have worked very diligently. The team in Canada, management, board of directors, but also, and most importantly, the team in Guyana, to bring this project to production. I want to remind people, in at the end of June, we concluded successfully the commission period, all that on time, and just at the budget, or let's say on budget, which is rare in this industry, and now we are in the phase of commercial production. Now, why Guyana? Guyana is its a great place to do mining business from a point of view. It is a British law environment. It's the only English-speaking country in South America. And the more than 25% of the GDP of the country depends on the extractive industry. So gold, bauxite, oil, gas, and forestry are the key things there. Therefore, the government you know, is tuned to support foreign investment in this kind of sectors. We have tremendous buying in from the local community, but also centralized government and authorities. On top of all of that, the local Guyanese people are well-educated and well-trained when it comes to mining equipment, you know, all the kind of sort of trades that you might need to build up a mine and operate it. Speaking of building up a mine, there are, of course, companies with significant gold assets, and they are two to three years away from production, some needing two to $400 million worth of capital to build out their mines. You had none of those costs, and you are in production. Yes, because 
because uh, that's the philosophy of this team. You know, Eric Fia, our chief operating officer, has done it with several other projects, most recently with uh, Silvercrest Mines. We want to be proud of ourselves that we are not really the pioneers, but what we call phase development approach. Now, Elisa would like to say that about 100 years ago, or even before that, the miners were doing exactly what we tried to do. They were never going out to find, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or big amounts to build up big mines. Our philosophy is that you develop a mine with the small capex and the precious metals, I would say, help for that. And then, obviously, as you de-risk the project with the various phases and milestones you try to achieve, you present more credibility, more support and confidence to your own shareholders, your own investors, the general market, but even your own operating team to build the next phases and deliver the big mine in a space of two to four years. So I do find that a lot of other companies are trying to come to this kind of space. But it's not unique to us, as I said. It has happened by mining miners tens and hundreds of years ago. And I don't know why in difficult times from the banking sector where, you know, cash is king and, and debt uh, and, and balloons of debt are out there and difficult to achieve, people still go to that kind of phase. But for us, speaking for ourselves, we have done it and we are now in production. Of course, it means that in the next 18 months, we will see a set of uh, milestones and further capital to be invested but at least we are in the phase of having cash flow and therefore knowing the, the risk of your project and uh, the challenges and mitigate upon them. What kind of challenges do you think there might be or do you not want to speculate on that? No I cannot speculate on that because uh, I mean the biggest challenge uh, is obviously for any miner is the price of the commodity, but uh, we are happy to be the gold space at the right time. You know, many people doubt us when the markets were very bad and people were predicting gold at the thousand dollars that we were building a mine. Now we have come out the right time. I say right time because although it's a parameter I cannot control, I do believe that the gold market is robust and the global events, macro drivers and so on are supporting at least the price to stay there where it is, if not to be improved. So everything, as I say, has to do with your own operating costs. And as long as we keep this cost low, and just to remind to your audience, we are talking for the mine life here, uh, cash cost close to $500 per ounce, and all in, which is taking capital and uh, overheads in Canada, about something between $600 and $700 per ounce. That, in this current gold price, is giving us a significant profit margin. And certainly since we began covering you, the price of gold has increased about $200 plus dollars an ounce and all you've had to do is continue to do the work you've been doing in the ground correct correct and uh, i always doubt that will go to you know nine hundred dollars so because you know other miners especially bigger miners will face existence problems and so on and a lot of mines would have been closed down but i mean sometimes i mean obviously gold is uh, moving with more sentiment and macroeconomic uh, information but as i say it's the only thing i cannot control but i control all the other numbers of the company and i'm happy for them it's interesting in that you have a share price of around 45 cents and compared to other companies in the space who again are not in production and won't be for a few years, there's a large disparity in some cases in share price and market cap. There should be even more attention on the stock at this time, all things considered. We have uh, tripled our capitalization in the recent seven months and we're very happy for that from the point of view that the investors and the general market has appreciated the fact that we promised some milestones and we achieved them on time and on budget. Having said that, we have to keep uh, working hard and move to the next phase. So we've got a couple of milestones as targets for this year and these are the introduction of a night shift because at the moment we operate just with one shift of 10 hours. So the introduction of a night shift which uh, will move 
the capacity from 1,000 tons a day processing to about 1,800 tons a day and all this is public we have put news out there and uh, that we feel will happen still in the Q3 of this year and late in the Q4 of this year the deployment of an intensive lead reactor which will move the, the recoveries from close to 50% out of gold concentrate at the moment to almost 95% so on one side we increase the amount of oil we want to pass from the processing plant and on the other side we effectively double the amount of gold you get out so therefore you could drop or as we deliver these milestones and even bigger developments in 2017 I see an appreciation also on our capitalization. You don't expect to have to go to the market for any future capitalization therefore not necessarily diluting the stock. This has been the way for the most part that this management team has handled this company and other companies has been responsible for in the present and in the past. And that's correct. But in my position as the president of the company, you can never say no because, uh, you know, that's not legal in any case. So we are happy with what we do at the moment. We do have a number of, a significant number of warrants from our construction financing that is in the money. And uh, we keep receiving voluntarily checks out of own shareholders. So that is helping us a lot. And obviously the market has paid attention to us, as I said, and is bombarding us with potential offers on loans and other stuff, and even equity, as you said but you know obviously this management is very prudent it's not only me it's all the whole board of directors and the vision they have here as we are instructed to operate under some strategy that we are part of and we define it so we'll see how it goes the coming months but i agree with you in addition to the up to 1800 tons a day that you'll be commercially producing is there anything else upcoming that you can share with us the only thing other point i want to enhance here in this kind of size of companies uh, everything is around the team and i'm very proud to say that we have built a tremendous team both in Canada on the management and the board of directors we have more than 250 years of experience collectively in the mining industry from big mines to kind of small mines discovering mines and deposits and selling companies and so on so this is a very expert kind of uh, management here now going to Guyana this is incredible so we have done all that without any security issues without any safety concerns or accidents so although we are small company relatively to others at this stage we still operate the company with high big company standards i'm coming from bhp as you said eric fear our ceo is coming uh, you know started his career with newmont the biggest gold miner out there so we definitely come with a mentality of you know protecting our people and safe environment zero tolerance to nasty things and so on so we are working and, and we deliver things on time on budget and on quality i would say and the jurisdiction in Guyana is about as good as it is in Canada, isn't it? Yeah, to some extent, even better. I mean, I'm, I'm living in Canada for 17 years now, so half Canadian, half European. But the point is that in Guyana, there is tremendous uh, dependence, as I said, on the extractive industry. So you have uh, direct uh, input from government authorities and, and local people in what you try to do. You know, obviously, you know, I don't like to separate countries in first world countries and third world countries, but as a developing country, it has different type of Challenges. The beauty of Eagle Mountain, and that's why we bought it six years ago, was its proximity to infrastructure. So we didn't have to spend much money on capital projects beyond the mine, and that's a beauty. So we really feel very confident there, and I, I would say it's a great regime to operate. Well, Giannis, as always, it's been a very informative interview. Congratulations on all your good work. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity, Alison. Have a nice summer. I've been speaking with Giannis Sitos of Gold Source Mines, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS.V. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com, 
or listen to the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and of course on voiceamerica.com. Join me now for a conversation with the Vice President of Corporate Development for Nobilis Health Corporation, Colin Azonian. Nobilis trades in the U.S. as HLTH and on the TSX as NHC. Nobilis is a recognized healthcare leader and marketing innovator that develops, owns, and partners with ambulatory surgery centers, hospitals, and physician practices to provide high-yield procedures in the rapidly expanding, minimally invasive elective surgery market. Mr. Azonian is responsible for the oversight of all mergers, acquisitions, joint ventures, and investor relations. Colin, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Alice. Nice to be back. Now, you recently acquired Arizona Vein and Vascular, including their affiliated clinics. While it's your practice to grow revenue through acquisitions, Colin, that's what you do, how does this particular business add further diversification to Nobilis's portfolio? How does it create a platform upon which Nobilis can build a national presence in the treatment of vascular diseases? First of all, thank you. We're really excited about the acquisition. We spent a great amount of time on this acquisition. So it's been in the works for quite a while. So we're very excited to finally have it over the finish line here and and really focus on integration and driving growth, as you mentioned. So the acquisition adds a new brand to our portfolio of specialties focused on the vascular business, if you will. And that new brand now gives us the opportunity to work with new physicians, both in the new facilities that we acquired, but also take this brand and integrate it with our marketing capabilities that we have today and expand it, not just to the Arizona market, but also to the Texas markets where we currently own and operate facilities as well, in addition to bringing it to our partner facilities throughout the country. So it is a tremendous growth opportunity for us going forward. In one of the news releases I recently looked over, it stated, looking ahead, and I'm quoting, looking ahead, we continue to seek potential acquisition opportunities in which we can leverage our marketing capabilities. The big biggest asset of Noblest, and we've talked about this before, seems to be these marketing capabilities. Are they the real secret sauce of the company? Can you literally apply them to anything that fits your boutique service-oriented business? Absolutely. With our vascular acquisition, that's really where we spent a good deal of time understanding the capabilities that we have to integrate the new vascular specialty into our entire marketing platform and the programs that we deploy. So the level of sophistication that we have in our ability to market to patients seeking care within these different specialties really gives us the opportunity to educate these patients, help them navigate the process, and really provide that transparency that they don't really get anywhere else that allows us and them to have a tremendous patient experience. And so that secret sauce, as you mentioned, is something that you really just can't flip on a switch. You really need to understand how both the patient, physician, and surgical process works. And it's our ability to bring all three of those pieces together and deploy them to our facilities. And with the acquisition of this vascular business, it's just another specialty that we have within our portfolio to continue to grow our business through that secret sauce. And this corporation basically was founded with an acquisition-oriented philosophy, was it not? That's what I recall the initial genesis of Northstar and then uh, Nobilis. That was an acquisition. Correct, correct. And we'll continue 
continue to do so with the fundamental business thesis that if we cannot drive incremental revenue or, or show growth in any situation through our marketing arm or marketing division, which really is you know the fundamental basis for how we're able to be so successful, then we're not going to do that acquisition. So we look at every acquisition as an opportunity, not just to acquire market share, but drive incremental revenue and really make these businesses that we acquire much more successful and, and perform better than they are today. As far as I know, and I've been following the company for a couple of years, these acquisitions, when they happen, they just happen and the process is pretty stealth as far as the public is concerned. How many potential acquisitions do you consider at any one time and what are the exact criteria for acquiring a company? Sure. So we usually look at about three to five acquisitions at the same time that are serious potential acquisitions on our plate. So as we comb through those, once again, the, the real focus is once we understand that there are sound business opportunities for us, we really then dive into the due diligence around you know the effective marketing capabilities that we can integrate and drive going forward. And that's where we spend a great deal of time and probably gives us, and and I know it does, gives us more insight into what's going to happen immediately after the acquisition gets done because we then have that intel and that capability to understand how much revenue, how much EBITDA, what the integration is going to look like so we can effectively turn these things around very, very quickly. Now, as it relates to, you know, the size of the acquisitions, you know, our focus is really looking at portfolio companies now, which means that they have multiple facilities across different markets with different physician partners and different specialty mixes. Now that we've really built you know, the foundation of the business, we now really are looking to scale on a much more national level. Speaking of EBITDA, I was looking over your financials and I've just got a couple of questions here related to that. How much in dollars have you earmarked for continued expansion and at what point do you stop allowing perhaps for significant capitalization to occur? Well, given our current position today, we really want to take a conservative pr- approach in terms of how much debt we continue to put on the company related to doing these acquisitions. Now, we're in a fantastic position and it makes my life and job quite exciting is because we do have the opportunity to lever up here quite a bit, but we're not going to get anywhere near our peers four or five, six times levered. We want to be in that two to three turns kind of range as we look to continue to grow. So that amount of leverage does give us the opportunity to be a formidable force in terms of our buying power in the M&A market, given what's available out there today. So it does not limit us at all. And we really continue just to see tremendous acquisition growth opportunity going forward. I think it's really important. I'm sure you would agree that when you're growing a company through acquisition and increasing revenues, it's really, really important that all of your facilities have a high collection rate on receivables. And you have, as of the last report that I read, a 91% rate on receivables. And that's pretty much unheard of. What do you attribute this to? I'm glad you asked that question because that definitely has been a hot topic amongst the investment community. Really, it's a hard component to manage through an acquisition strategy, specifically given last year and the acquisition of three surgical hospitals. These are much larger, more complex than your typical smaller surgery center. So as it relates to the billing and collections, there's a different level of complexity that goes into this. And you also have a aggressive growth strategy that we want to deploy where immediately following an acquisition, we want to make that thing as profitable as can be as quickly as we can 
And even if that means that our DSOs are going to balloon a little bit, right? And so you're going to see that AR not be as attractive as I think we all want it to be, but we're still extremely confident that our, our AR collectability is going to be as strong as ever. And, and I think it's important to point out that we don't carve out a bad debt portion for AR that's going to be uncollected. We've got a historical record uh, year after year of collecting 100% of our AR. So it really is a matter of a business decision for us to say, you know, we rather get these surgical hospitals online as quickly as possible, get them profitable, knowing that there may be some manual billing that needs to occur before the EMRs get put into place so we can do the electronic billing. And, you know, this Q2 showed that these DSOs are starting to come back down. The AR collection is as strong as ever. And that trend will continue going forward throughout the rest of the year. It's important to note, though, that you have a subsidiary, wholly owned subsidiary of Noblest that's specifically set up for receivables and everything's bundled. That's correct. And if you're referring to our Concertus division, that subsidiary of ours just had tremendous success so far in terms of creating these bundled packages or, or payment programs, if you will, and working with the TPAs, the brokers out there, the insurance providers in terms of being really a leader in the space for providing these bundled payments, not just to the payers, but also to the amount of lives that are covered under these payers and to these patients directly which definitely means better quality of care, more transparency, and you know, essentially a warranty, if you will, against the surgeries performed. So we really are taking the ownership as the provider to really back our quality of service that we provide through these surgeries. And we have the data through our traction of patients and their records over the years to be able to provide a, a high level of testament to that. So we're very excited around the progress of that. This must be very exciting for the acquisition targets because the principals in many cases can stay involved and grow their net worth. Yeah, no, absolutely. And being a leader in not just the bundled payment space, but also having this unique marketing capability, we find management as in Dr. Phil Wall over at Arizona Vein and Vascular. That was really the biggest selling point to him to join forces with Nobilis is really the opportunity that lies ahead given the unique capabilities of not just the marketing program but also our ability to leverage these bundle payment programs. Looking into the fall of 2016 and ahead into next year, what can we expect to see from Noblest? What else is coming down the pike? First and foremost is execution. That's really the forethought for all of us here is really just to continue to execute. You know, we had a fantastic Q2, not just from the numbers perspective, but also in terms of the processes and, you know, our internal controls and our filing and everything else that comes along with that. So we're more and more growing up as a public company if you will, and, and really catching up to the amount of pace that we've grown. So we will continue to execute and you will see fantastic work from management here over the next several quarters and closing out 2016. That's number one. Number two is the organic growth. The vascular acquisition along with our current facility infrastructure prior really gives us the opportunity to continue to execute as it relates to our organic growth story. So we'll definitely see that. And third is, are the acquisitions. Without saying too much, the pipeline is strong and we still have a very strong appetite to continue to execute some very unique acquisitions that will give us a much larger footprint and a, a much broader opportunity to continue to leverage our marketing capabilities to grow the business. Speaking of that footprint, are you working toward a full service nationally known brand and outpatient 
patient health care. Does anything like this currently exist or are you ultimately going to be setting the example? Yeah, no, I think we're definitely setting the example, especially as it relates to consumer-driven health care. And what's unique is you see a lot of these large health systems create a single brand, similar to the other large corporations, such as Walmart, for example, right, where you can go to the, their store and it's always the same store. We're very focused on creating a national brand of specialties. We're actually branding the specialty service that we're providing, not necessarily the nobilis name, but the type of surgery that we're providing so that patients know that when they get that specific service, they're working with the top doctors in the top facilities and they're getting the absolute best possible level of a care in an outpatient setting that they can only get under that brand, not necessarily under the the corporate brand that's always going to provide a mid-level type of experience. So we definitely believe we're the leaders in this space. And if we can grow our footprint through some significant acquisitions, we will be a tremendous leader in this space, given where our peers are today. Well, Colin, this has been a a very fascinating discussion. I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for bringing us up to date on Nobilis. I look forward to speaking with you again with more good news in the near future. Great. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Colin Azonian, Vice President of Corporate Development for Nobilis Health Corporation. Nobilis trades in the U.S. under the symbol H. LTH and on the TSX as NHC. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com, and listen to the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes and the TuneIn Radio app. Join me now for a conversation with nutrition consultant Salma Klaus. Ms. Klaus came to the U.S. from Estonia in 2001. She graduated from the University of California, Los Angeles, or UCLA, summa cum laude, in psychology in 2012, and received her nutrition consultant certificate in 2016 from the Bauman College of Holistic Nutrition and Culinary Arts in Berkeley, California. After graduation, she founded Heal With Food, a nutrition consulting business in Marina Del Rey, California. I interviewed Salma at the popular eatery Playa Provisions in Playa Del Rey, California. Salma, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. As people get older, they're starting to become more nutrition conscious only because we can't process what we used to. How should we begin this process, let's say in our 20s or 30s or 40s, so that we can live a healthy life? Start eating healthy and making healthy lifestyle choices when you are young. It's actually great to start when you're young because you want to make it a lifestyle. When we think about nutrition, we don't really know anything. We can guess, we can do some research on the internet, we can say, you know what, maybe I should eat more fruit. When fruit actually your body processes that and that's a lot of sugar right there i've heard you say before because we've chatted previous to this broadcast that one size does not fit all when it comes to nutrition why is what's good for me may not be good for you one size definitely doesn't fit all because we are all unique individuals with different biology needs and health struggles our bodies also change with age our needs constantly change as well where do you begin if somebody comes to you and they come to you because they want to eat better and they want to be healthier. What's the starting point? I take time and get to know my clients first. I ask them many questions about their diet, about their lifestyle, stress levels, how do they sleep, what do they eat, how do they feel when they eat something, and how do they digest food. So it's a pretty long process because I'm not going to be able to give advice asking just a couple of questions. So they have to fill out a three-day food journal, write down exactly what they eat, 
when they eat, I analyze it. I do computer analysis, and I also look at their health history. It's quite a process at the beginning, but once I get to know them, I come up with individual programs specifically for this person. And it also depends on what the client wants to do. Many clients want to feel better, but they are not willing to make huge changes. So we start little by little. I always ask, what would you like to do or what are you willing to do to change your diet or lifestyle? And it's a process, so we go step by step. When people seek out getting help, they usually don't feel well. And often they go to a doctor and you take medicine. When in actuality, food could be the medicine. You could be making the wrong move. Perhaps one should consult a nutritionist first if they have headaches, for instance, or their digestive system isn't functioning properly. It is what you eat, isn't it? For sure. I personally believe that food is medicine and that we can heal so many conditions with eating the right foods. And of course, there are some complicated conditions like clients who have cancers and they're not going to be healing the cancer with food but they can definitely eat the right therapeutic foods and feel better and be stronger to fight the cancer. Well, we deal with cancer a lot on this program. We talk about it and, of course, uh, many people, as you know, are afflicted with it. Do you have clients from time to time that have cancer and want to be able to find something that helps them feel better? Yes, for sure. Personally, so far, I have had one client with colon cancer and eating the right food in therapeutic doses has made a huge difference. Let's talk about stress, something that everybody experiences. Most people have some form of stress. What portion of that stress is related to diet or how can we minimize stress through proper diet? Stress is definitely huge in these days. It's called a silent killer because it contributes to every disease known. Many people don't know how to handle stress and they don't even understand the importance of stress management. You can eat the best foods in the world and have the best diet, but if you don't know how to handle stress, it's still going to affect you tremendously. So stress can adversely affect anything you eat. So that's something you have to deal with no matter who your clients are. Absolutely. Most people are addicted to sugar in some form or another. They may not even realize it. Is that an American thing or is it constant around the world? I would say that sugar addiction is not only happening in the United States. I'm sure it happens everywhere. And many people don't even realize that they have sugar addiction. But the basic thing behind it is that when you eat sugar, you get lots of blood sugar imbalances. And that's when the addiction comes in. Well, let's talk more about that, Salma. Sugar addiction is a perpetual cycle. When you eat sugar, you like it, you start craving it, it has addictive properties. Your blood sugar levels spike. With that, dopamine is released in the brain, which is related to addictive behavior, and also lots of insulin is secreted to drop the blood sugar levels. After that, the blood sugar levels fall rapidly and the body starts craving the lost sugar high. So you're continually wanting to have more sugar. Exactly. So you get addicted to it. You get sugar, your blood sugar levels go up, insulin is secreted, which tries to lower the sugar levels in your blood. And then once it's lowered, you start craving for it more. And then the cycle continues. There was a time in my life where I ate no sugar whatsoever. I was training very hard, 10 hours a week for an entire year, and I never touched sugar. Is that healthy? Absolutely. We can live without sugar. There are no essential carbohydrates that our body 
body needs besides fiber, which is carbohydrate, but we don't really need simple or processed sugars. We do need essential amino acids that we get from proteins, and there are also essential fatty acids that we get from eating fats, but we can live very happily without sugar. And when we eat fats, there is no insulin needed to metabolize fat, but there is insulin needed to metabolize sugar. My personal trainer several years ago told me I should not have a lot of fruit. It converts to sugar, and I always thought fruit was healthy. But as part of my training, I was supposed to really scale back the fruit at least during the latter part of the day. Yes, eating fruit can be tricky. Overall, fruit is very healthy because it comes with fiber and lots of vitamins and minerals. It's like a package deal. But if you eat a lot of high sugar fruit, then yes, you can get too much sugar. It's always good to eat fruit with other foods like proteins and fats so that you don't get the sugar high. What is sugar detox? Is that something that everybody should focus on? I don't think everybody should focus on sugar detox because not everybody is addicted to sugar, but people who are addicted to sugar and have huge sugar cravings, they should definitely seriously think about it. How do we do it? There are two approaches. The first one is reducing your sugar intake and substituting it with healthier options. And the second approach is quitting cold turkey. What are good substitutes for sugar craving? There are some great substitutes for sugar cravings, like substituting with high fiber fruit is a good option. And also using dates because dates come with lots of fiber. Many people think that using agave is a great substitute, which is not the case because 90% of agave is pure fructose. Your liver has to process it and big percentage of it is going to be stored as fat. Uh, stevia is definitely a great option. Oh, really? Okay. Because I see a lot of press on stevia, but you're telling me that it is a good thing. It is. Definitely stay away from artificial sweeteners, other artificial sweeteners, but stevia is a natural herb, so I definitely recommend that to my clients. And also honey and maple syrup in very small amounts is good. But again, some people cannot handle even small amounts of honey or maple syrup because it creates the sugar cravings in them, so these are the people who should just quit cold turkey. And that's what you recommend? Yes, but many people cannot do that. You had some specialized training in Northern California. Let's talk about that. Yes, I had a specialized training. I studied nutrition in Berkeley at College of Holistic Nutrition and Culinary Arts. The founder of that college is Edward Bauman, and he came up with this eating for health model. It's not a diet. It's more like a roadmap to healthy eating. He thinks that people eat for four different reasons. They eat for pleasure, for energy, for recovery, or for health. So the first one is eating for pleasure, which is more like emotional eating or impulsive eating. Also, addictive eating would go under that. The second level is eating for energy. There are many people who are under stress, live in a rushed world, and they just eat for survival. They eat only because they have to or their blood sugar levels drop and they don't care about the quality. They just eat fast food or grab whatever is in front of them. 
And the third level of eating is eating for recovery. These are the people who notice unwanted results from emotional eating or eating for survival. And then they go on a diet because they don't like what they see. But diets usually are short-lived because no one can practice willpower forever. So the best level of eating is eating for health. This is where healthy eating becomes a lifestyle and lifelong learning experience. Could a diet become a lifestyle? Yes. I don't like the word diet because it's usually associated with dieting and with people who try to deprive themselves. But when eating is a lifestyle experience, then people try to make it more positive and conscious experience and they establish loving relationship with food. That's when the quality of food becomes very important and people are usually more aware of their eating habits. If you have a loving relationship with food, don't you gravitate to food that's made lovingly, like restaurants where the food's prepared lovingly? I mean, you can almost tell when you go out to eat, if you're eating at a specific place, if love is put into the food, it's somehow going to taste better. And it, it starts with the management, with how it's prepared, where the food comes from. Doesn't that all go into the meal? And then you, as someone who enjoys eating in a passionate way that's healthy, is that not a perfect match? Absolutely, yes. You can taste the love that is put into the food. In actuality, a really healthy meal is like an antidepressant. I think people who eat for health make very conscious decisions about what they put into their bodies. They research about the restaurants, they research about the foods, what is good for them, and they just make conscious choices. And they do enjoy usually the great quality. The quality really matters to them. Now, I quit coffee for a couple of years, and it was no problem. I quit coffee, cold turkey, and all forms of caffeine, and I ultimately felt better. But one day, got around the smell of it, and I had a cup, and after two years, it was the greatest thing I'd ever had to drink in my life. I loved it. How healthy is a cup of coffee or two a day? And let's talk about caffeine. Should we live without it, or should we embrace it? This is, again, individual, because me personally, I love coffee. There is a lot of research showing that coffee can be very good for you. Coffee has lots of health benefits. But again, some people cannot even handle one cup of coffee. So it's individual. If you can handle one or two cups of coffee in the morning, it can make you alert and it can help you get more focused. It will give you that kickstart of the day. And that's why I use it. And that's why most people use it, I imagine. When it comes to coffee, I also always recommend to use organic coffee because coffee is loaded with pesticides if it's not organic. I have no idea. Even Starbucks or any of those? Exactly. At the end of the day, quality is the most important thing. So if you're going to drink coffee, buy organic. Buy organic with anything that goes in your mouth? Pretty much. And how much water should we be drinking every day? We should be drinking around 60 ounces of water a day because about 50 to 60% of our body consists of water. But at the end of the day, it's again individual. So just listen to your body and whenever you are thirsty, drink water and don't obsess about it. Just make sure that you are hydrated. Salma, thank you so much for joining us today in the program. I look forward to speaking with you again in the near future. Thank you so much for having me. I've been speaking with nutrition consultant Salma Klaus. Contact Salma directly by emailing her at salma.klaus.nutrition at gmail.com. That's S-A-L-M-E dot K-L-A-U-S dot nutrition at gmail.com. 
and listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. Hi, welcome to Car Kicks. Briggs Cunningham was pretty wealthy. Okay, he was very wealthy. He bought the first Ferrari sold in the United States right from Luigi Cinetti, America's first Ferrari dealer. He also owned one of the six Bugatti Royales ever made. He loved sailing and skippered the Columbia, a 12-meter yacht, to victory in the America's Cup in 1958. But we remember him mostly for his passion of racing cars and the few that he built. He began racing internationally in 1930 with college buddies Miles and Samuel Collier, who started what was to become the Sports Car Club of America. Cunningham would build cars up to 1955 when IRS rules changed and made it prohibitive for him to continue. The early 50s saw him produce race cars and adapt a few for public highways, Continental C3 notably among them. His production facility was in West Palm Beach, Florida, where he had mechanics installing 331 Chrysler V8s into his race car chassis, which were then shipped to Turin, Italy to get their beautiful aluminum and steel bodies made by Vignali. Only 25 Continental C3s were produced, 20 coupes and 5 convertibles, and they all are still around today. Cunningham wanted to take Le Mans. In 53, they won the Sebring 12-hour and won their class at Le Mans. Although the Cunningham cars bowed out in 1955, Cunningham's team continued racing other makes, and although Carroll Shelby is credited with creating the classic white with blue racing stripe color combo, it was actually Cunningham that created the color combination. Shelby adopted the reverse, a blue car with white stripes, and then later added the white cars with blue stripes. The Cunningham team was also responsible for the first ever class win by a Corvette at Le Mans. His accomplishments toward the goal of an All-American win at Le Mans were legendary. In July of 2003, Briggs Swift Cunningham passed away in Las Vegas at the age of 96. Later that year, he was inducted into the International Motorsports Hall of Fame. You can learn more about Briggs Cunningham at BriggsCunningham.com. If you search on YouTube, Lime Rock Park Cunningham, you'll find another video on the C3. Time now for the Car Kicks Car Quiz. The author of the James Bond series of books, Ian Fleming, wrote a children's book about a car which was later made into a movie. What was the name of the car and the movie? A. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang B. Herbie the Love Bug C. Speed Racer or D. Cars We'll have the answer in just a moment. Just like to take a moment and call out carparts.com. It isn't just a website, it's a team of people dedicated to getting you the right part at the best price. My experience with them was excellent. The part arrived damaged from shipping. It was expensive and heavy. Carparts.com didn't miss a beat. With one contact to customer service, a new part was flying on its way fast. Try carparts.com. They have over a million parts and accessories. They have high-performance parts that'll help your engine turn out more power, or just that hard-to-find replacement part. Their large selection of parts combined with their user-friendly interface makes shopping easy. Finding your needed components is a snap because of the features on their site. They offer a low price guarantee as well with every product that they offer. Shipping is fast. As I said, my experience was absolutely stress-free. Excellent customer service and no sweat problem resolution. I endorse them as a quality provider. Use carparts.com next time you need a part for your daily driver, hot rod, classic, or off-road vehicle. Carparts.com. And now the answer to your Car Kicks Car Quiz. The answer is A. 
1968, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, based on Ian Fleming's novel Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, The Magical Car, starred Dick Van Dyke as Caracatus Potts and Tally Ann House as Truly Scrumptious. For the film version, six cars were created, including a fully functional road-going car built by Alan Mann Racing in 1967. Actor Dick Van Dyke, who drove the car in the film, said the car was a little difficult to maneuver, with the turning radius of a battleship. Join us next time for another Car Kicks Car Quiz. Have you heard of Faraday Future? If you haven't, you're probably in the majority. They've been working stealthily for the last year and a half. They're one of the companies, or I should say automakers, who are looking to turn the idea of the automobile and how we use it on its head. They're working to create fully electric vehicles that offer smart and seamless connectivity to the whole world so that the vehicle would not just be fully electric and connected to the Internet's content, but would also provide, according to Faraday's model, autonomous driving and unique ownership models. Maybe you won't own the car as much as just use it. At CES, they showed a concept car, the FF01, developed to show their modular design concept called Variable Form Architecture, or VFA. It allows any number of body styles to be built atop the same chassis, which will likely be part of their connected production car goal. The concept car is said to have a 1,000 horsepower and a 0-60 to 60 time of 3 seconds and a top speed of just over 200 miles an hour. But will it do it autonomously? For Car Kicks... I'm Bob Lang. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.